If Isaiah has taught us anything, uh, he has taught us about God's holiness. The holiness of the Lord. That has been the mainstay and the main theme throughout the book of Isaiah. And of course, you remember when Isaiah met the Lord in chapter 6 and heard him declared holy, holy, holy. It was a traumatic experience for Isaiah. So traumatic, in fact, that he pronounced woe upon himself. You know, that's so different from how today people casually talk about seeing God's face. No one who has truly even had a glimpse of God can stand and have a casual attitude about it. So for Isaiah, the holy prophet, when he met the Lord who is holy, 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 he was traumatized. And he said, woe is me. And of course, all throughout Isaiah, we have seen how the wayward nation would pay dearly for trifling with God's holiness. And we have learned that God is a jealous God. Now, that is a very strange expression. It is an expression from the Bible, but it's an expression that needs a little explanation. When we read that God is a jealous God, it means that he has a zeal for his glory. You know, mankind, mankind is always telling God to change and to stop thinking so highly of himself. Mankind is always telling us, who do you think you are to demand that we change? No, you change. Because mankind, we, we don't want to give up our idols. And we don't want to worship God on his own terms. And such people are only ever repulsed by God's holiness. And in time they will be crushed by that same holiness. But that is not our story. And because we, you and I, we have seen how God's holiness is intertwined with God's grace. So the holy and, and righteous God, he sent the suffering servant, the holy and righteous one who stood in the place of sinners, who stood in your place and my place and received the full measure of God's holy wrath so that you and I might live. So you and I, we have seen, yes, God is uncompromising in his holiness, and yet his holiness is wedded, joined together with his grace. And so we have a different response to God's holiness. God's holiness now stirs up in our hearts worship. And it is with that that Isaiah ends his book. And here at the end of Isaiah, God's holiness is actually a healing balm for our weary souls. So the first thing that we note from this passage is Holy cleansing. Holy cleansing. Now, we have to remind ourselves the context uh, in which we read this passage. 
If you remember just the last chapter, chapter 65, verse 17, we read, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. The new heavens and the new new earth, uh, Isaiah sometimes calls it the Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. In elsewhere in the Bible, it is called uh, our heaven, the kingdom of God. And the new heavens and earth will have qualities uh, different than what we are used to in our present world. Uh, Paul summarizes and characterizes the qualities of this present world very well in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. There he says, For the creation was subjected to futility, And it remarks, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption when God's work is done. That is to say, the present world that you and I live in, this world, uh, bears the scars of man's rebellion against God. You know, when we look around this vast world, Sometimes we see sights that are so beautiful. The things in nature that give us tantalizing glimpses of enduring wonder that take our breath away. But then at the same time, we realize that death and decay are never far. And we realize even in the very place where our breath is simply taken away with beauty and wonder, we realize that beauty is fragile. Why is the world that way? The world in which after God made, he said, it is good. This world bears the scars of man's rebellion against God, and the world as it is now is not the way that God created it in the beginning. And I think we all, mankind, we intuitively understand that. And so mankind cries out for healing even as it is repulsed by the very one who is the healer. And creation itself is in anguish for carrying the burdens of man's sin. It's as if Paul is saying this creation created for God's glory, is simply fed up and is in agony because sinful men dwell upon it, use the gifts of God in order to rebel against them. But such things will not be remembered or come into mind in God's new heavens and earth. And it's out of that we read, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. God's judgment will find you out. God's judgment will pursue after you. And that's the point about being the chariot like whirlwind. 
There is no place you can run from to hide from God's judgment. And God's holy judgment will bring to an utter end every defiled thing. Whether it is defiled sinful art, defiled culture, defiled religion, and yes, defiled people. Nothing defiled by sin belong in God's new heavens and earth because the kingdom and the city of the holy God will only have in it holy people. And that is why it is of utmost importance that we are holy. But we have to be holy on God's terms not ours. And so the Lord rebukes them here, those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together. Uh, These people represent those people who reject God's revealed will because God has revealed so clearly in his word how he is to be worshipped. When these people act out in this way, worship as they see fit, this is a very representational picture of a religion and pursuit of holiness that has rejected God's revealed purpose. You know, the same mindset is present today, too. Um, Today, we hear it in terms of people who say, you know, in my opinion... God is like this. And don't you just want to stop them and say, who cares what you think God is like? Because what you think about God has absolutely no weight, no bearing. Or sometimes we hear people say, you know, I'm spiritual but not religious. Uh, What they mean to say is that God is like going to a buffet. You know, I'll pick and choose what I like, but don't you dare tell me how to approach God. Don't you tell, uh, dare tell me to change. We need holiness, but we need a kind of holiness that God counts as holiness. And that holiness that God accepts is what he has revealed in his word. And this is what God has revealed. Have you exchanged your sin? for Jesus' righteousness. That's how we become holy. It is the only way we become holy. To trust and to believe and acknowledge with gratitude and faith in your heart that Jesus stood in your place bearing God's wrath, that your sins were laid on him and his righteousness was given to you. And having been justified by faith, Does God's spirit of holiness dwell in you? Is the Holy Spirit, notice, he is the Holy Spirit. Is he working through you and changing you that you are becoming increasingly holy before God? You know, it is only such people that are holy, and it is only such people that belong in God's new heavens and earth. So I ask you once again, have you exchanged your sin 
for Jesus' righteousness. Does the spirit of holiness dwell in you to work through you, to change you, to become holy? Now, by the way, please, don't question your salvation just because in your mind you are a miserable sinner. In fact, if you remember, this is how chapter 66 began. This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite spirit and trembles at my word. Holiness, we think, is measured in terms of how much progress we have made. But you know, sometimes holiness is measured in terms of our own understanding of how much we lack, how we are undeserving, and how we grieve over our sins. So let me say this to you, loved ones. Holiness is so critical that without it, apart from it, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. But it's really not about measuring our success, but it is about how contrite and broken we are before God. Do you seek the Lord Jesus as your only hope and salvation? Do you lean on him daily? Not that. That is the mark of being devoted to God and being holy. So that's the first thing we see. There is holy cleansing because no one but the holy will come into the new heavens and earth. Secondly, there is a holy movement. Holy movement. Notice chapter 66, um, uh, starting in, I think it's verse 19, where it says, I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. The sign that he sets before his people in between Jesus' first and second coming, the sign that, that rallies God's people together, the sign that motivates God's people to service is the cross. And it is uh, the cross that is the sign for God's people. And we realize that we survive God's judgment because of what the cross signifies. And this is the wonderful thing about faith in Jesus Christ, in that our faith in Christ brings forward in time the verdict that you and I will hear on the final day, on the day of final judgment. Having faith in Jesus Christ means that we know today what God will say on the day of judgment. And because of our faith in Jesus Christ, because of his death and resurrection, we know today that when the final day of judgment comes, God will say to us, you are justified, you are holy, you are mine, you are my child. That's what faith in Jesus Christ enables us to do. And that's what the Lord means when he says, And from them I will send survivors to the nations, those who by faith have survived God's judgment to come. And God assigns the survivors, those who by faith have escaped his wrath and judgment. He assigns them a task uh, in between Jesus' first 
and second coming. God sends them out as heralds and missionaries. So look at verse 19. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites. So let me put it this way. The found people go to the lost people and bring them to God for salvation and for holy service. Saved people go to those who are not saved and bring them to God in Jesus Christ that they may together serve the Lord with holiness. In other words, all saved people are called to be a part of this holy movement. Now, what does that mean? It means being the witnesses of Jesus Christ. And you know what's uniquely wonderful about this country is that in 21st century America, the world is quite literally at our doorsteps. And although we often are discouraged that Christians are increasingly becoming the minority, it also means that it's that there are so many people around us that do not know the Lord, and we actually don't have to go far away to bring God's good news to them. Now, it is true, we do not all have the gifts or the callings to be on the front lines of missions ourselves. Now, some of you may not be very gifted in public speaking or even, uh, even the, the thought of having a theological, biblical conversation may feel daunting. I don't think that reflects a compromised faith or sinful uh, attitude in your heart. I think it's often a reflection of very particular set of gifts and calling that God has given you. And I know many just beautiful, committed saints who are terrified at the thought of sharing the gospel. Again, it's not a reflection of a lack of faith as much as it is a simple recognition, perhaps of lack of training, perhaps of a different calling that God has given them. All that to say, we do not all have the gifts or the calling to be out on the front lines, but we all need to find some meaningful ways to be a part of this holy movement, to understand that God has called the found people to go to the lost people. And if you can't go yourselves, and if you can't talk yourself, you need to find some ways to support and enable those that go and those that speak. And I'm not just talking about money. But what gifts, what resources, what opportunity has the Lord given you so that you may have a meaningful participation in this movement? And I've always found it interesting how people, Christians, obsess over 
God's will for their lives. What's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? And they obsess over it when God has told them, <laughs> go, bring in the lost people. That's God's will. And I wonder if we obsess over God's will in our lives because we actually want God to change. Do we ever say to God, no, no, not that. What else have you got? <laughs> what, you want me to go? No, no, no thanks. Give me something else. What God has told us, and loved ones, let us use the gifts, the resources, the time that God has given us to make Jesus known. And if you haven't done this already, if you're not in a regular habit of doing this, may I urge you, go home today and throughout the week. Think of the ways that you can participate in the work of the gospel. And by the way, let me add this. Every one of us, we can pray. And praying is not something we do because we can't do something better. Praying is the most important thing. And so we can start from there. So there is a holy movement. Be a part of it. Finally, there is a holy security. Verse 23, from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall uh, come to worship before me declares the Lord. The new heavens and earth will be a place of eternal worship. Sadly, I think we are secretly ambivalent about worship because eternal worship doesn't exactly scream fun. But did you notice how we always worship something. By that I mean, we devote our love, our time, our resources to what gives us a sense of fulfillment that makes us happy. And when we do that, we never think we have wasted one minute. As a matter of fact, we, we spend enormous amount of our time and resource to the things that bring us pleasure. And when it is over, we can wait until we do it again. You know, that's worship. Devotion of the heart and everything you are that gives you a sense of fulfillment and joy. And so realize that the problem is not with worship per se when eternal worship sounds a little less than thrilling. The problem is not with worship, but the problem is that we don't love God. That's the problem. But we were created to worship. And we are never truly human. And we never truly flourish as human beings until we become what God has created us to be. And the wonderful thing about heaven is that in heaven, our love for God will be deeper and abiding. And in heaven, worship will be a delight 
and worship will be dignifying. Because if you notice, the alternative to worshiping God is not some greater freedom or blessedness. Look back at verse 17. Those who rebelled against worshiping God on his own terms, they end up worshiping detestable things, abomination and mice. In their rebellion against God, they did not find greater glory or blessedness, but they they became dehumanized and they became degraded. Now, that's a very specific expression of rebellion against God, but let me tell you that it is the same today. When we refuse to worship the holy God, it doesn't make us better people. It doesn't give us greater Uh, sense of worth or greater fulfillment that we do not flourish because we were created to worship God. When we refuse to worship the God of the Bible, we become dehumanized and we often end up degraded. But when we worship God in holiness, that is the only way that our dignity as human beings is secured. And it is when we worship God in holiness that we are set on the path of eternal flourishing. Human beings, we will never flourish by pursuing the desires of our own hearts. We flourish only when we worship God in holiness. And God's holiness, we see here, is also security against everything that has harmed us in life. Now, we have to recognize, don't we, that the words of judgment in this chapter, in this passage, are very startling. They're very shocking. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. They are startling, shocking words, but understand that they are actually a healing balm for our hurting souls. And because the new heavens and earth, the heavenly Jerusalem, is a place of absolute safety and security. And in that place, there will be no more defiled and defiling thing that will endanger our blessedness with God. That is why the holiness of God, as shocking as it may be for those who are unable to receive it, It is actually a healing balm for our souls. So we say, as we finish out this book, holiness to the Lord. And we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now let's pray together. Father, thank you for teaching us of who you are. You are the God of holiness, and you are the God of grace. You dwell in unapproachable light, and we cannot dare to look upon you and and expect to survive. And yet you have humbled yourself, 
and in the person of your Son, you drew near us, that we, lowly, broken, weary as we are, that we might find in him, in Jesus, the Savior who is compassionate and gentle. So we pray to you, O God, as you have saved us by grace, and as you have put your Spirit in us, help us to grow in holiness, and help us to love your holiness. And may we look forward to the glorious day when we will be in your kingdom, safe from all harm, but secure forever. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.